everybody. Welcome to Bigfoot Backpacker. Today, we're going to be talking with a special guest, and uh, he certainly has some experience that I thought would be interesting to speak with, not only in his personal life with some backpacking, some bigfooting, and uh, also combined with some of his professional life. His name is Josh, and he's taken a kind of a unique twist to use some of his professional skills, and he uses his uh skill set to build geographic information systems. And he kind of plots them with Bigfoot sightings and other variables. And they're really interesting to kind of take a look at. And I've had a chance to kind of take a peek at him, but I thought it would be better just to have the man himself join us so he can tell us how he does this, why he does it, what he likes to do. And uh, we'll kind of go from there with some new questions for Josh. Anyway, welcome, Josh, to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. No, it's been a been a good opportunity to sit down and talk today. So first of all, why don't you just give us a little bit of background about yourself and uh, how you got started in the Bigfoot world and how you've combined that with your professional uh, occupation at this point. Okay. Well, um, like like a lot of, I think, people who love looking into Bigfoot and, and so on, um, I kind of became interested in Bigfoot as a kid. Um, from the classic TV shows like In Search Of uh, with Leonard Nimoy and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, on those shows they'd play the Patterson-Gimlin film and, and other footage, and, and that kind of thing just really gripped me from a very young age. Um, and I was interested in aliens and, and, you know, Loch Ness Monster and all the other cryptids, but um, the older I got, Bigfoot always seemed to be the most interesting because um, as I – grew older and, and I and studied different kinds of natural sciences and um, anthropology. Um, though I, I will admit I'm not totally sure that Bigfoots exist. I guess you, I, you could call me an agnostic. Um, they are just, it's, they're just, they sit right on the edge of possibility. It's the most intriguing uh, case in cryptozoology. Like, it could be possible. Um, it just so elusive, and I think that's what keeps me and, and probably many people interested in Bigfoots throughout the years and, and um, causes the interest to keep growing. Absolutely, and it's the same for me, too. I'm definitely, that's a good way to put it. I like how you did did uh, did express that, that, that it's, it's a good way to be with agnostic kind of an approach because you're willing to accept the fact that you don't know. You know, we all see so many documentaries and new shows that are coming out and new podcasts and that kind of thing, which is exciting. And everybody kind of has their different viewpoint. So agnostic is it kind of fits me as well, too. And uh, so I think that was a, a good choice of words. And uh, so what do you think? I mean, there's so many people on the left side, maybe we'll call it, I guess, if you will, that are absolutely 100% believers. But we also have the right side of the skeptics. And most of us, I think, kind of land in the middle. What do you think there's more of? Well, I mean, I think that in the, in the world in general, there's there's many more skeptics. Um, I think in the Bigfoot community, there's probably more, uh, I've heard the term knowers, um, people who feel like they know Bigfoot exists, and uh, so it's sort of beyond belief. Uh, they know it. And um, I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that they've had personal experiences. And that, again, I think is one of the most intriguing things about Bigfoot is that um, while a lot of the evidence sometimes doesn't really hold up to that much scrutiny, well, there's select bits of evidence that, that do. 
Um, you can't deny the amount of people that swear up and down to what they saw. And, and that, to me, is a very intriguing aspect of Bigfoot. And I agree. It, and, and I'm the same way. You know, not 100% is, you know, a hoax or a lie or a made-up story. There's just no way it could be, in my opinion, uh, because there is so many out there. But, yeah, the BFRO, you know, recognizes certainly cat Class A sightings, you know, Class B sightings. And uh, have you come across a Bigfoot? Personally, no. Um I so I guess you you were I was gonna get a little more into my background so I've been um, either an archaeologist or sort of a uh, uh, environmental scientist that's been my career and so I work on the not on the academic end of those pursuits but on the commercial end um, basically helping um, developers or the government kind of meet. Um, regulatory standards for, for those things. And that has led to like a lot of time in the field. Um, basically the beginning of my career was a hundred percent field work. I was out in remote locations all the time. Um, so I've spent a lot of time in the woods, um, as have many Bigfoot enthusiasts, although I feel like I come at it from a, a little bit of a different angle because I feel like a lot of Bigfoot enthusiasts spend their time in the woods hunting. And for me, it was more being in the woods, um, studying various phenomena out there in the wilderness, whether they be natural or, uh, you know, from ancient or historic man. And so what I'm getting at is that all that time in the woods, both professionally and recreationally, I've never seen a Bigfoot uh, in person. But I have seen some of the things that people cite as evidence, uh, especially um, the stick structures and the tree breaks. Um, I've seen you know, a lot of those over the years. And um, years ago, I hadn't even heard that those were Bigfoot evidence. But once I kind of picked up on the fact that the, the Bigfoot community saw those kind of things as evidence, I did start, uh, often I would take a picture if I see something like that. Um, I'll admit that for myself, I'm not 100% sure that those things are evidence of Bigfoot, but I'm open to the possibility. I hear you. Yeah, it's uh, yeah the fallen tree structures. You know, some people are thinking, yeah, they're putting them together maybe as an sh actual shelter, or they're using them as some sort of message: stay away, or come this way, or maybe another message to another Bigfoot saying the deer are migrating this way. And so, yeah, if you wouldn't mind, what what did you think when you first saw, and what did your your first, I guess, stick structure kind of look like, and what'd you think? Well, I would say I've seen all kinds of stick structures from like just uh, ones that are, you know, one or two sticks, like the X's that um, researchers often talk about, that Bigfoot uh, researchers often think that the X's are like markers, like stay out of this area. I've seen many of those. Um, and then, you know, to the to the more teepee style ones. And then even to ones that look more like nests, like um, kind of brush pile, hollow brush piles that are, that are really big, though, like you would think bigger than like a wood rat or something like that would make. So I've seen a variety of that kind of thing in my time in the woods. Um, but personally, uh, I guess, unfortunately, that's the only Bigfoot evidence I've experienced firsthand, if, in fact, those things are evidence of Bigfoot. Sure. And, no, it's great that you're able to snap pictures and kind of make your own little collection of what you've seen, be able to compare this one to that one, especially with different areas. 
So I find it really interesting. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about um, how you've done your GIS. So for those of us out there that don't know what that exactly is, and I'm still learning a little bit about it, and you've certainly been a big help, and you're out in the field quite a bit, so you have such an opportunity to just to be outside and to, you know, listen for new sounds and, and new smells even for that matter. But what I found was, and the one I saw specifically was your Colorado, where you began to plot these sightings that you've researched against bear population and that sort of thing. So, yeah, give us a little bit of insight about GIS and how you do it and what information you need firsthand and and then before you have a finished project, because your maps look wonderful. And oh. people need to see them. So, yeah, give us a little insight how it works. Well, first first of all, thank you for saying that my maps look nice. I, I appreciate that. Sure. So, so the story with these maps is so GIS is uh, Geographic Information Systems, and uh, whether people are aware of it or not, it's a really ubiquitous technology. It's in everything we use, uh, cell phones. Um, they use it for advertising, to target advertising. Obviously, the military uses it uh, a lot, um, uh, law enforcement, um, any kind of application. You think of that, that app that was really popular for a while, Pokemon Go, that runs on, on GIS. Um, I use it in my career for, like I said, environmental studies. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here at work, and I'm like, well, I wonder if I could find any insights about Bigfoot using this technology. But um, what I needed first was the data, the Bigfoot sighting points. So basically, if you will, GPS points of where people spotted Bigfoots. So I think to myself, well, where can I find this? And I was like, this is a long shot, but I'll email um, Cliff Barachman from the TV show Finding Bigfoot, and you know maybe he'll respond and, and let me know if such a database exists. And... Uh, I was lucky enough that he did respond, and he pointed me to um, a database of GPS points of Bigfoot sightings. So uh, I want to—I always want to say thanks to Cliff for—you know—he's obviously a busy person. So I appreciate that he answered my email and pointed me in this direction. So I was able to get that data and download it and uh, start working with it. And then I'm just like, well, what can what? In environmental factors can I compare it to? And, and also, can I look for sighting clusters, basically areas where there are a whole lot of sightings? And this is the same approach that biologists would use to study a known species or that biologists would use to try to pinpoint the location of a species that they actually think exists. So, you know, one thing I hear all the time when I listen to Bigfoot podcasts is Bigfoot people saying, well, scientists won't listen to us. So I want to kind of be that alternative. I want to be that scientist who will uh, listen, and I'm using a method that biologists definitely use um, in order to try to study Bigfoot. So that's kind of the point behind the maps. Oh, that's, that's fantastic, and, I, and, and you're right. Uh, the Bigfoot world definitely needs a little more science, and I, I'm glad – you know, that there's scientists out there like you and, yeah, and Cliff, too, that, you know, he, that's what he wants. And he certainly is talking more about, hey, we need to get down to some nitty-gritty here so we can actually become more and more believable and, and uh, comprehend exactly what's going on with some of these sightings and experiences that people are certainly having. So with your with your GIS system, I know that you plotted in 
Colorado, it looks like, sightings that are, you know, compared to some of the black bear populations. Tell us how that how that looks for you and maybe what you're interpreting out of what you plotted. Okay, sure. So I do have to give credit on that one um, to another um, Bigfoot enthusiast, Wes, uh, and he has an account called Squatcher Metrics, which is just at Squatcher Metrics on uh, Instagram. And I connected with him, and so the points on that map, the sighting points on the Colorado map are actually his data, um, and it's a little newer. So the, the database that Cliff pointed me to I don't think gets updated anymore. So I connected with this guy, Wes, and he hooked me up with some newer points. So that that's the points on the Colorado map. I just want to always – I always want to give credit where credit's due for people that help me out. Absolutely. Uh, so that, that aside – um, what I found with this series of Colorado maps is that first um, first big takeaway, all but two of the Colorado Bigfoot sightings that we had um, occurred within the Black Bear Range. So there's two ways you can interpret that. You could say, a skeptic would say, well, obviously, Bigfoots don't exist. People are just seeing black bears. Um and that's an easy thing to jump to, and I have some sympathy for that point of view. But uh, uh, someone who was more open to the idea of Bigfoot would say, well, it makes sense because Bigfoot would most likely have a very similar um, pattern of foraging and looking for food as a black bear, being that Bigfoots are, um, you know, probably a little bigger but kind of similar in stature to black bears and probably omnivorous. So in that case, it would makes sense that they're in the same range, they're seen in the same range, um, because they probably have a very similar uh, food-finding behavior. So an interesting thing about these maps is, like, in all data, so all data is that there's it's always open to interpretation. So I, this is a good map to talk about because there's those two ways to look at it. And I, I did a couple other uh, things with it where I, I displayed it over some of the concentrations. So, like, I took the fall Bigfoot sightings and I displayed them against the fall black bear concentration, so the areas where black bears group up in the fall. And there, uh, the correlation kind of fell apart. Uh, it was more like, you know, 30% of the Bigfoot, of the fall season Bigfoot sightings happened within fall black bear concentrations. So that would lead you to believe maybe the um, the latter point of view makes more sense, that it's not that every Bigfoot sighting is just a misidentified black bear, but in fact that Bigfoots sh uh, share food foraging habits with black bears and therefore occupy the same range, but you can see by the seasonal data that they don't necessarily concentrate in the same places seasonally. Um, but then again, you could always interpret that the other way, being that food resources are also seasonal. So you would think if the food way of these two animals was similar, their seasonal uh, concentrations would be similar. So there's always um, different ways to look at any kind of data, and that's one thing I love about making these maps. It's just it's kind of fun like that. It opens it like a lot of things when you're studying Bigfoot, it opens uh, more questions sometimes than it gets answers. <laughs> That's true. That's always true. And, yeah, I think I think it's fantastic. 
that you're doing this because not only does it keep you in that world, but it also, like you said, in what your your one of your biggest goals is to be able to show that this can be scientific that we can we can see and could lead to predicting maybe from year to year or month to month, whatever that looks like, where hotspots might pop up because yeah, um, it certainly brings on patterns. Well, so you bring up predicting. And so one thing that GIS is used for in the environmental uh, sciences is like pre- something called predictive modeling. And like this is something I've done with archaeology where um, it'll have been observed over time that um, – an archaeological site from a certain culture, say like um, prehistoric indigenous people here in America, is always observed like on a certain kind of landform. So it'll be observed uh, X distance from water in an area with X slope factor, right? Mm -hmm. So you can use GIS to pull out those areas to narrow your search for those ancient sites because they're not obvious, you know, you might have to dig, so you want to narrow that search, right? So I was listening to um, uh, Bigfoot researcher Shane Corson of the Olympic Project up, uh, up there in the Olympic Mountains, and he was talking about finding uh, nest areas in the Olympic National Forest on a certain kind of landform. And so I took the – I kind of just interpreted from what he said, and I was able to make a predictive model that pulled out those areas and display it over – a map of the Olympic National Forest or a section of the Olympic National Forest. And so, you know, I tried my hand at, at a sort of a Bigfoot predictive map. Of course, uh, I don't believe it's been tested yet uh, in the field. I haven't gotten a chance to test it myself. So uh, right now it's only speculative, but I have actually tried to actively use the maps in a, in a predictive manner. Oh, I think that's that's fantastic. Can you imagine being able to rely on that a little bit more. Wow, you could certainly find yourself in a in a spot. Maybe some of these, you know, more renowned Bigfoot researchers, they're doing some of this and just not really give it out secret. So, no, that's fantastic that you're doing that. How many different kind of variables can you take and, and compare it with? Uh, one I was interested in, I thought in my mind, gosh, I thought it would be interesting to be able to compare the Bigfoot sighting map to temperature and elevation. Okay, well, I, I've done ones with elevation. Okay. Uh, that was actually one of the first ones I did. Let me see if I can scroll down. Um, I have my Twitter account open so I could look at some of the maps I've done and uh, speak about them. Um, I believe with the elevation one, I found that most Bigfoot sightings were, were – so what I did was I broke down the elevations for um, – I took, like, a western Washington because, you know, that's a very – it's a Bigfoot hotspot. So, like, basically the Cascades and the Olympics and the area in between the Cascades and the Olympics. And I, I broke down the elevation into four categories. And I, what I found was that Bigfoots were most often sighted in the third highest category. So not in the Alpine zone, and but up in the mountains was the most likely place to spot a Bigfoot, which, you know, it makes sense, and I I think that's probably true with other, uh, I guess what you could call large game in the area as well, such as elk or or bears. Sure. So when you, yeah, when you're plotting these and making these maps, uh, 
then you're hearing about sightings and, you know, maybe a new report that's more recent. You go back and try to see where that fits into your, to, to what you have and, and kind of see if that helps you. Just is it, is it kind of a living animal, a growing thing, these maps that you're building? Well, this is part of why I'm trying to um, appear on some podcasts and, and get the word out is because um, I would like people to, I would like Bigfoot researchers to be more aware of the their ability to record their sightings geographically um, and to, you know, if they do that, they can send them to me, send the coordinates to me, and, and the database can grow. Um, so there's various ways that anyone, you know, without even investing any money, can record a GPS point um, basically with your phone. There's a there's an app called Avenza Maps that I would recommend to any Bigfoot researcher who likes to go in the field because it lets you, first of all, make maps that you can navigate with, and it lets you drop a point. So if you find something, say you find a track or you find a stick structure, or even if you see a Bigfoot, if you have this app, you can drop a point there, and, and in theory, then you could um, send that point to me, and I could add it to the database, and it could be a, a living uh, database, as you say. But right now, um, I haven't been – I don't have basically the source to update it right now. So that's why I've been trying to spread the word. Absolutely, yeah, and it all has to start somewhere, right? Yeah. Oh, good. Well, yeah, so I know we can reach you on Twitter, and it looks like you have some YouTube uh uh, subscriptions going on too. Why don't you tell us real quick and then about how people can get a hold of you and what you're looking for to help build your database and to make things stronger and, and more accessible to people. Sure. So um, it, Twitter, it's just at PNW Bigfoot Maps or on um, Instagram, it's also at PNW Bigfoot Maps but with underscores between PNW and Bigfoot and then between Bigfoot and Maps. So just just underscores between the words on Instagram. Uh, you could DM me on either of those accounts and start a conversation. If you happen to be a researcher and you take GPS points at any of your sightings or evidence finds, um, I would love to have those coordinates, and I will happily add them to the database, and it will make any new map I make in the future just a richer document. Um, you know, one thing that is a, is a rule of statistics is the more um, the more data you have, the more the statistics mean. So if you have a data set of 50 items and you run analyses on it, it's going to mean way less than if you have a data set with 1,000 items. So if I just welcome people to send me GPS points if they happen to be researching Bigfoot and they happen to record those. Sure, that makes sense. It's a lot like even political polls. The bigger the sample is, sample size, of course, the more accurate your data is going to be. So yeah, the yes, it's, are here. <laughs> yep, it's exactly like that. Yep, exactly. All right. So now, yeah, people know where they can kind of certainly reach out and uh, help help you along. Uh, how are some of your fellow scientists uh, reacting to you doing this, or are you even talking to them about it? Well, that's a funny question. Um, you know, I'm pretty close with some of my coworkers, and I, I've kind of mentioned that I've done some of these basically just to chuckle. Yeah. Um, 
there's not a lot of openness to the existence of Bigfoot in the scientific circles that I am a part of. Uh, I hear you, and yeah, and that's gonna I think always gonna be the ongoing debate, and that's okay. And uh, but wow, the imagination and the mystery of the whole concept to me is what is what keeps me going. I'm not sure exactly what would happen if there was a, or in my mind at least, what would happen if there's an absolute conclusive proof that you know there is this new species. I mean, I think our whole world would be turned upside down. So there's a big part of me that doesn't want it to happen, but at the same time, I kind of do. So, but I love the fact that you're out there trying to see this scientifically. Obviously, Cliff approaches it that way too. There's Dr. Meldrum, you know, and we have some researchers that were PhDs and doctors that have died, unfortunately. But that it is, I think, it's gaining a little bit more traction with the with the possibility that it's just not a bunch of you know crazy people out running around trying to trying to uh, have a story to tell to make some money somewhere. So I really applaud you for you know trying to take that scientific approach which does obviously put you in the field um quite a bit in any given week and it sounded like you were telling me that you had actually through hiked the appalachian trail i did yeah so in 2007 so it was a long time ago now uh right when i graduated from college i took about six months and i through hiked the appalachian trail northbound which so this I, I love the opportunity to come on a podcast that's about both Bigfoots and backpacking because those two subjects go together really well because, like, the best way to, to look for Bigfoot is backpacking. Uh, you know, you get farther away from people, and it's just really fun. You know, backpacking is – I don't know if it's a sport, but if it was, it would be my favorite sport. <laughs> I think it better be a sport. Yeah, we'll have some sort of new Olympic uh, Bigfoot uh some sort of competition. It's kind of funny. Yeah, in the Finding Bigfoot, they had their little competitions here and there, so they made it fun. But yeah, the Appalachian Trail, I've only spent time on the East Coast, mostly in, in Virginia, for a little while and haven't hiked any of that. I'm mostly a, a Western person, I guess, if you will. But wow, you so you started in Georgia and went clear through to Maine? Um, yep. How long did you, um, what was your, tell me a little bit more about actually being on the trail. So, you know, it's kind of just like a learning experience. I had backpacked a little bit before I did it, but um, I don't know that there's anything that can prepare you for the continual um, slog of it. And and I say slog, but also I just consider it one of the biggest blessings of my life that I got the chance to do that because it's not easy to have six free months and – you do end up having to spend a little money because of the gear and and just not working. So I'm just I'm I'm just blessed that I got a chance to do it. Um, it's one of the funnest things I've ever done. I just I loved it. Um, you know, so many parts of it are so iconic and so beautiful. Um, literally from the first step in Georgia to the last step on Mount Katahdin in Maine. Um, it's almost all enjoyable, and if you're not enjoying it in the moment, which no one is going to enjoy the whole thing in the moment because there are some very uncomfortable experiences, um, you will enjoy it looking back on it. <laughs> That's what I can say. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I've done – I haven't done anything quite that long, I guess, on a through hike but I've done, you know, 26, 30-mile hikes over a course of sometimes even just three or four days, and it is – it's tough. 
but I've always found you described it pretty well in the moment. Sometimes the enjoyment it may, might not be there. But where I've really reaped the benefit is when you're done, you're finished, you're at home, and you think back, oh, my God, Tuesday was horrible. My feet hurt. My back was killing me. Nothing was going right. But I got through it. And that yeah. to me priceless. So I'm kind of a stubborn person. So once I got going on the Appalachian Trail, there was, like, no way I was going to quit. Um, but I remember days where I was walking, and I was like, I hope I break my ankle so I have an excuse to quit. <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, luckily that never happened. True. That's good. Yeah, that's a good thing. And I imagine injuries happen. That's probably happening today. Somebody out there is, you know, falling or twisting an ankle somewhere. Yeah, one of my friends that um, was on there with me for a while, he uh, injured, He got injured and had to stop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, it happens. And uh got to be able to take care of yourself for a little bit before, based on what kind of injury you're sustaining. I do yeah. have a question for you about the Appalachian Trail that I've just read about it as much as I possibly can. Uh, but I've heard and read about these markers. There's blue ones, white ones, and that people are putting up for different ways to travel on the trail. Is that something you came across through the whole thing? Oh, yeah. So if you're on the on the trail, the white blazes are the trail. Um, and the blue blazes are little side paths. Um, to go to, like, um, say there's a scenic waterfall or something like that off the side of it. But the white blazes are the trail. And, and um, there's some people who don't consider you to have really hiked the trail unless you see every single white blaze. Um, I will admit that's not my case, you know. Um, but some people are purist about it like that, I guess. But yeah, so the, the the white blaze is kind of the symbol of the Appalachian Trail. It, it's on the trees as you go, and it lets you know that you're on the official AT. Well, that's good. It uh, it wouldn't be wouldn't be hard to get lost, I'd imagine, if you're just starting out and you just take off. So that's good. I got lost plenty. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I haven't hiked it, and I, I'm so I've always had this curiosity about it. It's a heck of an accomplishment. So, but uh, yeah. I can see how people might get lost then, but at least they have that going for them a little bit. But, yeah, there's always going to be purists with everything, and, and that's okay, too. We all can find the balance in the middle. But yeah, for sure. Your favorite. What was your favorite part of it, What and where were you? Oh, it's so hard to say what, what my favorite part of it was. Um, the White Mountains in New Hampshire are extremely beautiful and rugged, and you know, if you start in Georgia, it kind of feels good when you get there because it's incredibly hard hiking. Like, you could be doing 20 miles a day easy, you know, through New Jersey and New York and Connecticut. You hit New Hampshire, and you're going to be down to eight miles a day, and you're exhausted at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. yeah be- I- because of how steep it is. And those mountains are above the tree line, and it just – you look like you're in an, it feels like you're in another world in the White Mountains. And you know, that's like where Mount Washington is. Pretty famous mountain there in Vermont. Or, I guess, no, I guess Mount Washington, New Hampshire. I might be getting confused here. Okay. But the White Mountains are a really beautiful part of it. Um, the, uh, the Rhone Highlands in Virginia are a really beautiful part. They call it the Highlands because, 
you get up into this area and it's uh, treeless mountains and it kind of looks like the highlands in Scotland. And that's a really beautiful spot. I really love the Great Smoky Mountains. So those are some of my favorite areas. Yeah, and it's diverse. It's so diverse going, you know, from the south to the north and, and vice versa. It sounds like most people start from the south and, and go north. It looks like my latest reading was about a thousand people a year at least try to get on it and get going at some point. So that's, wow. Yeah, that's that's what I had just recently read. And I uh, think so. I think when I did it, it was five hundred a year. So it's gotten a lot more popular. Yeah, latest thing I read that about seven hundred people go from south to north, and about three hundred, give or take, um, from north to south. So, you know, that can be can't imagine. Obviously, it's not all at once. When you were hiking the trail, did you come across quite a few people? Yes, uh, it's busy. In, in fact, if you want to be completely alone, like as far as at night, like when you're camping. That's almost a decision you want to make ahead of time and find a place where no one is. Uh, in the peak, at least in the, in the main season. It's busy. Because not only are there the people through hiking, there's people who are just out for the weekend and it, I was rarely alone, to be honest. Um, I mean, I definitely camped alone many nights, but, um, the majority of nights I, I would be at one of the shelters. And there'd be plenty of people there. Okay, I see. I follow you. Okay, getting a little bit better picture of it a little bit. So yeah, it's uh, almost like you're in a in a in a, in a weird in a, a separate culture. It has its own culture. Yeah, it definitely the, the backpacker world and anybody that you know that's off off the trailhead just a few miles. There's there's a there's a it's a whole different kind of vibe just to life, and that's what yeah. I enjoy about it so much. So yeah, did you see any or hear any Bigfoot activity? On the AT when you were out there? So I didn't, but I had one um, sort of paranormal experience. Really? Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah. So my friend, um, my friend who I mentioned earlier, he got injured, and I were hiking together, and this is towards the very beginning of the trail, um, in a place called Blood Mountain, Georgia. It's like creepy name, right? Um, and we were hiking at night. So we like to do this towards the beginning of the trail. We we were just enjoying hiking through the night. And um, we get to the top of Blood Mountain in the middle of the night, and there's a, the sh- there's a shelter up there. But unlike a lot of the shelters, which are just like uh, wooden lean-tos, the shelter on top of Blood Mountain is a historic um, stone building. And we were messing around, you know, we stopped there for a minute, you know, had a snack and messing around. And we took some pictures of each other in the door of the stone building. And, and we were scaring each other. Like, it, we were like, oh, is there ghosts in here? And we were joking around. But when we looked at the pictures, there were, like, orbs in them. So, again, I'm an agnostic on this stuff. So were, they, were those just, you know, floating bits of dust or something? Who knows? But it was kind of a creepy night. And uh, incidentally, there was there was a, an actual murder on Blood Mountain, I believe. I want to say the, the next year, um, some guy murdered a woman up there. Oh, wow. Of course, right? Blood Mountain. Yeah. It's eventually going to happen. 
live up to its namesake at some point. Wow, that's crazy. What color? Well, I think it was named. Sorry to interrupt. I, I was just going to say I think it was named from uh, being the site of uh, battles between various indigenous tribes. Right on. Oh, that makes sense. I suppose. Yeah, I'd have to look and see. What color were the orbs that you saw or have in your photos? You know. Um, well, I got to say, unfortunately, I don't have these photos anymore. I think my friend might have them, but um, they were, you know, kind of sort of slightly opaque, kind of whitish blue, and they were like behind us in the in the stone shelter. It was very creepy, and we were creeped out when we were there. But of course, it was the middle of the night in the middle of the woods, and it's hard not to be scared sometimes in that situation. Yeah, just being out of your element just a little bit that you're not used to in every single night. And then, yeah, if it was a, a new trip for you, yeah, there's always going to be a little bit of that. Uh, I always just called it bear scares because I grew up in a in a bear environment. But, yeah, anything can be scary if you're listening to something or seeing something, that's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you said it took you six months to get through? Yeah, it took me about six months. I think I started March, late March. And I, I know what my finishing date was October 7th. Wow, that's impressive. That's a long time. A lot of dedication. And you're one of the very few people in the world, I guess, that can say that you've made it through. I think that's fantastic. So, yeah, what are you well, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I'd like to emphasize the fact that while it is an accomplishment, um, you know, I just feel like I was blessed to have the chance. You know, I just want to sort of be humble about that because – in order to make that accomplishment, you have to have the chance to do it first. You know, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yep. There's. It, it takes time. It's nothing you can do on a weekend. So, yeah, yeah, there's some dedication there. And when you're giving time to something, usually it means you're taking time away from something else. But I think... One, uh, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, one thing I noticed was that as far as people I met, there was a lot of retired people and a lot of people in their early 20s. You know, not not a lot of people in those professional years because, like I said, it's hard to get that opportunity to take six months off. Ah, that's an interesting, uh, you know, observation, certainly. So, yeah. yeah. Good good, good observation. That's fantastic. So what's next for you, Josh, in terms of some of your next professional steps? Well, well professionally, um, you know, I'm just – I'm a – I work in the, you know, the environmental compliance field, and I don't see them moving on from that anytime soon. You know, I'm a, basically a GIS professional, and, uh, yeah, that, that's what I do. I, I'm, I'm not in the field as much as I used to be, which I kind of miss, but I also don't because I, um, you know, started a family recently, and uh, also, I would not have been wanting to go in the field a lot during the pandemic just because of the safety of the travel and, and all that. Um, although, once you're out in the woods, it's safe, but getting there is a different story. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I'm a little bit more of a desk jockey now these days, but still enjoy it. Absolutely. Well, that, that, that's just fine. But you're, you're definitely in, in a world that I think the Bigfoot community needs. Because, yeah, you'll get out and, you know, and huff it around with the pack on, plus you're also, you know, taking a, a, a smart approach to things, and I think a lot of people are certainly going to appreciate that. I love your maps. I'm a map guy anyway. I'll read any kind of map. I can study a map all day long and just kind of wonder about what's out there. So it's a lot of fun. And uh, so, yeah. 
So you're you you're around. You live in Oregon. I do. Yeah, I live, I live in Portland. Oh, okay. And how's Portland doing these days? It's pretty good. It's yeah. pretty good. I mean, I've 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 lived here for about ten years, and and I I loved it from the get go. Um, and I do love the region. I love the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I'm actually from Virginia, but uh, definitely have not had a hard time finding a second home in the Pacific Northwest. Absolutely, and especially with your with your love for Bigfoot and your agnostic approach, and that's that's the thing that keeps you going outside. So, do you do you do you go to Bigfoot conferences? Do you uh, talk with other people quite often, or just once in a while? You know, I never have gone to a Bigfoot conference, and I feel like this past year would have been the year, but again, uh, pandemic. Yeah. So I'm hoping to do some of that stuff in the future. Yeah, it uh, it certainly has, and hopefully, yeah, this year everything can get back on the rails the way it's supposed to be, and, and we can uh, kind of start enjoying life a little bit differently, a little bit better than than what we've all experienced. I think this year. I know, you know, the, one of the things I'm looking forward to is actually. I, I'm sorry if if you don't mind. Where are you located? I I'm well, I'm from Montana, but right now I'm currently in the Las Vegas area. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to say. Uh, you know, Cliff Brockman has a, a museum here. He opened just south of Portland, and I was so excited to go uh, right before the pandemic hit. And so, like, I feel like that's one of the first uh, Bigfoot uh, social things I'm going to do when when I get vaccinated is go to uh, Cliff's museum. Yeah, I try to keep up with him and and see with his uh, North American Bigfoot Center. And yeah, he's he's had a lot of ups and downs, but he just you know he has such a good attitude and he just keeps trudging through and and seeing positive results. And yeah, I would love to make that trip. I'm definitely going to plan on spending some time in the Northwest and and uh, kind of seeking out what I can seek. And yeah, I think is it's in Boring, Oregon, if I remember correctly. And I think yes, just, yeah, yeah, that he had reopened. Uh, at least part-time now again. So he's been pretty excited promoting that as far as what I've been able to catch up with. He has, yeah. That's fantastic. Well, great. You know, we I know we could talk for hours and hours here about, gosh, all sorts I'm of I'm sure things. we could. Yeah, when it comes to backpacking, what kind of fun things you use, what don't you use, because that's a never-ending story. But uh, I mostly wanted to be able to get you the chance to be able to talk about your maps, because I think you're doing something there that, you know, when you're comparing variables to variables and beginning, especially into the predicting world, I think it's going to be fantastic. And, you know, you're, you're, you're doing a good thing there. And I think a lot of people are certainly going to catch up with you now. And, and I'm going to be following you and watching what you're doing. So yeah, if you don't mind, send me some things every now and again. And I would love to see them and, and promote you as much as I possibly can. And yeah, I found you with, uh, with Twitter and squatching with Josh on Twitter, and why don't you remind us one more time how people can get a hold of you and kind of what you're looking for and how they can help you out. Sure. That's um, at PNW Bigfoot Maps on Twitter, and it's also at PNW Bigfoot Maps just with underscores between the words on Instagram. So either of those places is a fine fine place to send me a message and uh, start talking Bigfoot and GIS data with me. Absolutely. Well, there you have it, folks. Watching with Josh, he's uh, he's out there and he's ready to start making some uh, prediction when it comes to Bigfoot. I'm pretty excited about that uh, based on real empirical data. So again, this is Josh. My name is Dan. You can reach me at BigfootBackpacker.net. 
My email is dan at bigfootbackpacker.net. Josh, are there any fast things you want to say that maybe I didn't cover? Um, I don't think so. Your questions were great, and I just really appreciate your time and, and you uh, having me on here to spread the word about what I'm doing. Yeah, I would love to have you back and maybe get some of your permission. I would, I'd even put on my website maybe a few samples and, and, uh, and help you out there. I think you're doing a good thing, and I think a lot of people are going to take notes, especially from the skeptic side of things. Some of your, your plots and information comes out and then with new sightings. So it's, it's fun stuff, and keep at it, my friend. Thank you, yeah. All right, everybody. Well, that's watching with Josh. We'll catch up with him, and we'll see what he produces in our near future. Thank you very much, and we'll see you on the trail.